Good morning, and thank you for the high honor of being able to fill the pulpit this morning. Um, on Thursday, after, late morning, the phone call came that most elders' knees shake when they hear Tim is sick, and uh, someone has to fill the pulpit. I just want to give you a little history. I did call down to our main go-to guy, who was Pastor Jared Hurd, and Jared told me that he just returned from his father's funeral and was also positive for COVID, so that was not going to be an option. The other uh, pastor that has so ably filled our pulpit so many times, Dale Hanoka, was called in November to fill the associate pastor position at Roseville OPC. So he is not able to, so uh, by God's grace, I had been reading uh, uh, a meditation on Psalm 11, and I took that as a sign to go ahead and use that as the basis for my preparation for this. I'd also like to thank Reverend Paul DiMaggio. I don't even remember, but for those that are long at Spring Meadows, Reverend Paul DiMaggio had been our interim for a few months uh, after uh, Carl Robbins had left, and the dear man in his 90s told, told my dear wife that he would be glad to share one of his memorized three sermons. So thank you, <laughs> Reverend DiMaggio, for your willingness to do that. Um, we um, also, in this time, I'd like to thank several people, uh, like Dr. R.C. Sproul, Dr. Robert Godfrey, Dr. Uh, Tim Keller, C.H. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, and uh, Matthew Henry, for whose notes I am liberally going to uh, take from this morning. So thank you so much for your attention to God's Word. This morning our passage is going to be from Psalm 11. If you can turn there and follow with me, I will be reading it from the uh, ESV version. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests his right to the righteousness, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is enduring and powerful. I pray for this speaker that you would help me to communicate that to your people this morning. Make our hearts tender to the truth that is there. And Father, help us to take it after this day and take it out into the world to be able to share the truth of Christ with others. We thank you for this time, Father, and for the beauty of your word. And in all these things we ask in Christ's name, amen. I must say, too, that it gives me a whole new appreciation. Tim makes this seem so easy. So we need to appreciate our pastor for his great pulpit ability. Sometime after Twitter became a thing, I made a, a tweet. Now, if you, I won't share my account with you because I haven't been in there in years but you'd probably see there were all of five tweets in there. But one of the early tweets I made would probably cancel me in the woke culture of today. It was during 2015 when the Supreme Court was debating the o Obergefell versus Hodges division, a decision about the nature of the definition of marriage. And what I tweeted was, respect for all persons, yes. Redefining the definition of marriage, no. 
And then I concluded the tweet with the words from Psalm 11, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I've seen many sermons on uh, Psalm 11 on YouTube, then they take that verse and they use it as a uh, kind of a, a rallying cry about the, the change in our culture, how the foundations of our culture have changed. But if you read this verse in context, and we'll get into that in a moment, it's really not what it was intended to be. It was a part of some counsel that David was receiving, counsel that probably was with the best of intent, but wasn't right on. The, the title tells us both the author and audience to the psalm is the chief musician. We see in different psalms the Asaph and Heman, different, different men that were uh, musicians. And uh, the uh, earliest versions in the Hebrew of the Hebrew Bible, you'll see that the actual book of psalms is called the book of songs. Many of them were meant to be songs, praises to God. There are laments. There are, you know, uh, uh, imprecations against, against the unbeliever. There's all kinds of things we can see with the Psalms. But Dr. Rod, Robert Godfrey in his great teaching, and I really recommend you to get this on, on uh, Ligonier, the teaching on the Psalms, talks about how it progresses from the early Psalms to the later Psalms in a symphony of praise. And you see this with the last five Psalms, you know, very, very focused on God's praise. David is counseled by his friends. He's in a situation we don't, we think probably this, most of the commentaries that I read, said it's probably at a time when Saul was after him. We know that Saul had tried to pin him to the wall with a, a javelin. We also know that Saul had made very clear to his son Jonathan that his intent was to kill David. So either then or at the time that Absalom had tried to take over the throne, there were two seasons where David was in great peril. And his friends come to him and they counsel with him. And we are seeing in this psalm David's dispute of that counsel. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as the bird to the mountain? In the years before he took the throne of, of Israel, we know all the things that David went through. We know God's faithfulness to him with uh, being a young shepherd boy and then going out in front of the armies of, of Israel, facing the armies of the Philistines and taking a, a, a mere rock and bringing down the great warrior uh, Goliath. We've seen again and again how God blessed him and what led to Saul's jealousy because as they're coming back from one of the, the military campaigns, uh, it, the, the women start singing, Saul has laid his, slayed his thousands, but David has slayed his ten thousands. And that led Saul to become very jealous and paranoid about David having the throne, taking the throne, which was not David's intent. We see again and again in the narrative, and, and I'm sure that Tim will be getting into this in 1 Samuel, the, the great scene in the cave where uh, Saul comes into this cave to relieve himself, not realizing that David and his men are in that cave, and he could have taken down the king of Israel at that point. But he creeps up, takes a piece of his uh, robe, and then later shows, and Saul says, David, you are more righteous than I. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? This expressed the outrage in David's response to his friends, no matter how well-intentioned his friends were. Uh, they gave him advice of fear. I think the one example that I've, I've always been very encouraged by is the great church father, Polycarp. He was told, all you have to do, Polycarp, is, is say, Caesar is Lord, and you will not be burned at the stake. And instead, Polycarp said no. He refused to recant, and he said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? David understood God's faithfulness to him. 
Spurgeon talks about this passage and he said he, that David would rather dare the danger than exhibit a distrust in the Lord his God. Uh, in the commentary on this verse from Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry says, here is David's fixed resolution to make God his confidence. In the Lord I put my trust. Those that truly fear God and serve him are welcome to put their trust in him and shall not be made ashamed of their doing so. And it's the character of the saints who have taken God for their God that they make him their hope, their only hope. David remembers the words of the fear that are coming from his friends. They tell him, for look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We can understand David's friends, their desire to protect their, 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 their good friend, to keep David safe. But we can think about other places in the, in the uh, Bible where there's counsel that is less than, less than positive. Uh, probably one of the worst uh, we can see is Job's wife, right? When God allows Satan to come the second time to Job and Job's skin is full of boils and he's scraping himself, what does his wife say? Curse God and die! And Job turns to her and says, don't be one of the foolish ones. We know that Peter, Jesus made it very clear that his destiny was to go to Jerusalem and to the cross. And Peter says, may it never be. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. All right? Peter, Peter's counsel was earthly, but in a way it was demonic. And he was rebuked by the Lord. We had a, a uh, very um, godly family that um, came oh, this has to be 15, 20 years ago maybe, 15 years ago at the temple, we were at the temple. And uh, <clears throat> they came and asked for financial help because they were uh, going to go in the missionary field in Mexico. And his uh, livelihood was from an orange grove. He and his brothers owned a large, I think it was a 300-acre orange grove in Florida. And uh, he told me at the time that he had taken tremendous uh, uh, verbal lashings from his brothers saying how can you leave the business right now you know and he said no the Lord has called us and they went down there and were able to establish a reformed work I forget if it was um, in Juarez or in Tijuana and uh, then after about three four years the family called him back and he had to go back to the but lives were changed because of that but if he'd listened to the counsel of their family he would never have gone the advice given to David was well meant but ungodly you know we we see that that it was not the intent, that God wanted him to trust. We must always be careful when we give advice. We think about Eliphaz, you know, one of the three men that, that counseled Job. And Job told, uh, Eliphaz told Job, I will tell you, hear me, what I've seen, I will declare. But by the end of Job, we know that God is, is upbraiding those three counselors, telling them that their advice to Job was wrong. When we fear things we cannot see, we are really walking in fear. David's friends may be using an, a bit of manipulation here. You know, they make it sound very bad. The wicked have the bow. The, you know, the bow is, 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 is uh, ready, ready to fire. Um, they are secretly planning against the upright in heart. But David, David would not be, not be moved. And they use the word, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, as I said, I've seen lots of sermons where pastors have used this verse and uh, have said, you know, it is a, a dire thing to look at our culture and to see how things have changed in the last few years. Um, I probably spend too much time with Terry watching HDTV, but about halfway through a, uh, half of those shows there, when they've got started to tear the house down, uh-oh, 
foundation problem shows up, right? They find out the foundation is bad and then it le leads to much, much more expense. And, uh, and uh, it's a terrible thing when you're the foundation of your house is failing. Well, how much more so the culture of foundations we see. I was looking through the paper yesterday and uh, the local R R RJ paper and it said if you're signed up with this particular dispensary, they will actually deliver marijuana to your home, right? We wouldn't have thought of that even 10, 15 years ago. It's an amazing how accretive, how little by little by little the culture has changed around us and why the gospel is so important to be able to stand. Um, we think about uh, just the nature of how we um, see little by little this having an impact in the culture. There was a, a paper, an article in the Wall Street Journal about two weeks ago and they were surveying middle managers in middle America in small towns that had factories. And the one gentleman, his comments just so struck me. He said, well, you know, now that, that we're getting out through the uh, COVID period and I have jobs, that I have lots of jobs in, in the machining that, uh, that I can give, he said, I get people calling me and 10 people will call and say they'd like to set up an interview. And he said, of those 10 people, maybe six will show up. And then he said, of those six people, only three can pass the drug test. So this, this sense in the culture, you know, of, 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 of that change of, of how, how much we see. So the, David's friends ask him, what can the righteous do? When David heard these words from his friends, his head probably told him there was, there was something to them. You know, definitely the peril was there, but his heart told him that he had to heed the advice of the Lord and to flee would be to compromise. Spurgeon says, Satan will use plausible logic that unless we once and for all assert our immovable trust in Jehovah, he will make us like the timid bird which flies to the mountain whenever danger presents itself. So at verse 4, David begins his answer. He begins, in, in some sense, a kind of rebuke to his friend. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. If you get a chance to see Dr. Robert Godfrey's piece on, on the Psalms, he's about, about eight, it's about eight different lessons. One of the things he talks about, the construction of many of the Psalms, he says, visualize a triangle. Okay, and on the bottom left corner of a triangle, if those of us that didn't fail geometry, not very good in geometry, but on the bottom left corner of the triangle is the first verse, okay? The first verse, on the Lord I put my trust, the verse that opens. The apex of that triangle then is this, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his throne. And at the far end, at the third uh, uh, point of the, temp, uh, of the triangle, you would have the last verse, for the righteous shall see his face. There's a progression there, you know, a progression showing of David's growing uh, trust in God's protection. The Lord in his, is in his holy temple. Probably David had both in mind the Lord's temple on earth and the Lord's temple in heaven. David reminded himself and his friends, God hasn't gone anywhere. You can go to his temple and meet with them. And we, you know, they didn't have the advantage we had. There in the tabernacle, once a year, the high priest would go in and uh, offer sacrifices and, you know, spread blood on the, on the mercy seat. We have the living temple of Christ. We don't have to have a once a year experience. We, we can access our Lord at any time. Our, the temple of the Lord, what Jesus did, he told them, he told them at, when he was at uh, the temple at one time, he told them, I will tear down this temple and I will build it in three days. And they were amazed, thinking that he was talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body, as we know. 
When the advice of fear comes upon us, we can only arrive at the answer of faith by spending time with the Lord. When we think about our problems, the advice of fear often overwhelms us. When we think of Jesus in the throne room of heaven, we remember that he is praying for us. What plots can men devise which Jesus will not discover? Uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary on Psalm 11 says that there is a God in heaven, the Lord is in his holy temple above, where though he is out of our sight, we are not out of his. Let not the enemies of the saints insult over them as if they were at a loss and at their wit's end. No, they have a God and they know where to find him and how to direct their prayer unto him as their father in heaven. Or he is in his holy temple, that is, in his church, he is a God in covenant and in communion with his people. Who shall go up to heaven to fetch us thence a God to trust us? No, the word is near us. And God in the word, his spirit and his saints, those saints, those living temples, the Lord is in that spirit. So the Lord's throne is in heaven. This was the source of David's great confidence. It was not foolhardiness or self-reliance. Instead, David had confidence in an all-holy, powerful, and all-knowing God. David was asked, what, the right, what can the righteous do? And how did David answer? What can't the righteous do with the Lord when God is still on his throne? God knows the end from the beginning. We think about, I just finished, um, started again this year, the reading through the Bible, and I just finished Genesis 50, that wonderful moment when uh, Joseph's brothers come to him, and they are fearful. They think there'll be retribution on the part of Joseph for what they've done to him. You know, years before, putting him down in a hole and then selling him to Midian trailer, trainers, not knowing that he would end up, by God's grace and mercy to him, being the second in command of Pharaoh. And what does Joseph tell him? You know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We can rest in knowing that God knows the end from the beginning. From the beginning. David answers by remembering what God sees. He tells them in the psalm, His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. David didn't need to take the advice of fear because God saw his situation. David had a greater cause than self-preservation because he knew that God was looking at him and taking care of him. David answered the question, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The righteous can know that at times the Lord will test us. There will be seasons of our life when we go thing through things. I, a few weeks ago, I also had the high privilege of preaching, and we talked about the passage from James chapter 1, where there are times when we don't see, we don't understand, you know, through, through this, how God is using a situation. But yet we know that he knows the end from the beginning, and we can rest in that. We can rely on that. David also reminds them that God is not immune or, or blind to the wicked. He says, but the wicked and the one who loves his violence, God hates, his soul hates. As God sees, he's not a detached observer. He cares. He sees the wicked and he hates them. David is saying, I don't need to flee to protect myself because God is in heaven and watching me and sees, and he sees how sinful the conduct of my enemies are. You know, I, I think about the verse when Jesus is on the way to the cross, he talks about the day of judgment and he says that there are those when the, the moment arrives and they realize that judgment has come, that they'll want the mountains to fall upon them. They'll want the mountains to fall upon them. The destiny of the wicked is not, not, a, not a good thing. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind. We know from the, <coughs> the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, narrative earlier in Genesis that the fire and brimstone w indicated you know, total annihilation, total destruction. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be their portion of their cup. 
Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone. God will punish the wicked. This gave David confidence in the midst of the advice of fear from his friends. After all, if the ungodly persecute the righteous, how much more will the righteous God persecute the ungodly? When Jesus remembers that on the way to the cross, it, it's a sober, a sober warning that he gives them that people will come to a point of saying, have the mountains cover us. Um, this shall be the portion of their cup. The image of the cup as a container of judgment reminds us of Jesus' prayer in the garden. Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup Jesus dreaded was the cup that contained the wrath of God against sin. Wrath that we deserve, but Jesus drank for us. It says they drank down to the dregs. We look forward to the next week when we went once again, when we have our teaching elder back and we can hopefully celebrate the Lord's Supper. Tim often reminds us, and I'm very glad that he does this, that Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we might partake <coughs> the cup of blessing. David is remembering now the love and favor of God in the psalm. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. This was a comfort and an encouragement to David. When we were rebelling against the Lord, his righteousness is no comfort to us. But David knew he was the innocent victim of persecution by Saul. And he knew that the Lord knew that the righteous Lord would take up his cause and defend him. <clears throat> David says he loves righteousness. It isn't that we must earn God's love by our personal righteousness, no. But to please God, it says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God's love extends everywhere. Nothing can separate us from that love. We're told by Paul in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we can deny ourselves the benefits of that love. People who don't keep themselves in the love of God end up living as if they are on the dark side of the moon. You know, I, I remember um, reading the uh, uh, narrative from Mr. Collins, the one astronaut that did not go down on the first moon landing on July 20th, 1969. When my dear saintly mother saved up and got us our first color television, which is all of about 12 inches, and then we turned it on and realized that the moon landing was in black and white. <laughs> so, but I remember him talking about the scariest moment, not scary, but the moment that gave him pause was when he was circling around the dark side of the moon, and for that period of time being out of contact with the NASA base. When we are, you know, not in God's will, when we are in our sin, we are out of, uh, out of that contact. You know, we, we ask God to forgive us and we come to him and his mercy and grace come to us. David says his countenance beholds the upright. Now scholars and translators debate if this means God's upright, if the Hebrew, God's upright people see him or the actual translation is the Lord sees his upright people. It's a small point. Essentially, it's a saying the same thing. In the NIV, it says... Um, Upright men will see his face. The uh, NASB says the upright will behold his face. Uh, the, another version says the godly shall see his face. Uh, both, both these are true. God shines his face on his people. He speaks of an eye of approbation or approval and true and tender affection and watching and gracious providence. We know that often Tim, when he closes the service, will use the ironic blessing where it says the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's people will see him. I will see your face in righteousness. And Psalm, Psalm 15. And then, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, which God, God Jesus uh, shares in the uh, <clears throat> Sermon on the Mount. 
All in all, when David considers the greatness of God, the care of God, and the vision of God, it all outweighs the danger. For David, trusting God was the safest thing he could do. His friends may or may not have meant well. You know, sometimes we have counselors that have well intention. They mean well, but their counsel is not right. But if you're struggling this moment with issues that seem insurmountable, know that the Bible gives us many, many, many examples, especially uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 when he asked the Lord three different times to take the thorn from his side. We don't know what that thorn was, whether it was the fact that his, some had said his eyesight was compromised or was a physical ailment. But Paul says, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. We are called to have a childlike trust that God is on his throne. I remember, I think it was, we, by God's grace, had two different trips to China for two different adoptions, and I believe it was the first trip to China where we were in a service, and everything is in Mandarin, but they started singing, and what they started singing was, Jesus loves me, this I know. And it was amazing to me. Our, our guide actually thought it was a Chinese hymn. <coughs> when we told him that no, it was an American song, he was quite amazed. But that song, even though we can mature, we think we're too mature to, 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 to really sing that song, the song teaches us about Jesus, that we truly are little ones and we belong to him. We may get too old for the song, but we should not mature beyond its truth. Even Paul did not outgrow the confession of his weakness. If that seems humiliating, then we have not fully grasped the blessing of Jesus' love. Our Savior delights to show himself strong on behalf of those who confess the need of him. When we acknowledge that our sins and our trials are beyond our ability to deal with them, then we are resting in our Savior to rescue us with his finished work at the cross. Our grown-up tendency is to trust our abilities, you know, to think that we can do it on our own. Childlike faith that trusts Jesus' love and power confesses, Jesus, I need your help. Then that same Jesus that loves the little children responds, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I was watching... <clears throat> a video that Tim Keller and his wife did where they were responding to questions and ironically I was watching this before the call from Sue and it was about Psalm 11 <clears throat> and <clears throat> the question that came into uh, Pastor Keller was how do we deal with pain and suffering and how, how do we how do we and this was from an unbeliever obviously but how do you trust in a God that allows this to happen and <clears throat> Pastor Keller said this, the head needs to remember that God is on his throne, like a child who trusts in his father's care, his father's care, and the heart needs to know that the God is in his temple. Not the temple made by human hands, but the living temple that is our Lord Jesus, who fully understands and endured unimaginable suffering for us and right now advocates for us in the throne room of heaven. It is an amazing thing. Jesus is there. Jesus, our advocate, is there in the throne room of heaven, taking our pleas, taking our prayers and advocating before the Father. But Jesus opened the curtain at the cross, and we can now have direct access knowing that he is praying for us. Um, one of the things that in my reading I came across um, was a poem by uh, a British gentleman by the name of Edward Shillito. I have a copy of this poem if anyone would like to see it, and it's not long, and I will, I will read it slowly, but it's called Jesus of the Scars. <clears throat> Shillito um, was an English writer, and he was dismayed because during World War I he lost several friends 
uh, in the trench warfare of World War I. And he also saw many men that came back you know, greatly disfigured because at that time they did not have the plastic surgery, men that were burned, men that had suffered you know, grievous wounds. And <coughs> people, he was a believer, but people had come to him and said, you know, how can this be? <coughs> how can this be? <coughs> and the result of it was that he, <coughs> he uh, penned this poem, Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thy eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heaven frightens us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars, for we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. It just really encaptures relying and knowing and trusting and placing our reliance on knowing of Christ's accomplished work. You know, it... it, it one of uh, this came to me years ago and I think about it often in heaven we will see those scars and be reminded of what Christ accomplished for us God gave his son that we might have all comfort when naysayers come to us and they give us counsel that's out of fear we don't have to worry we don't have to <coughs> give in to it we can know that God is on his throne and like a child we can draw near in confidence that he does know the end from the beginning now I just want to say that if you are here for the first time and, and uh, you are visiting and you do not know the Lord, I would really encourage you to come see an elder after the service and we would be more than glad to be able to share the gospel with you and, and to, to uh, be able to share with you about Christ's accomplished work at the cross. I, I think often in this culture of ours, I see more and more day, in, day after day that the greatest need is for the gospel, for the light of the gospel to be shown. So help us all to be bold. That's as Rick prayed. I pray this week that we would be bold, that when we encounter folks, that we would not shy by, be, be intimidated by political correctness, but to be bold in sharing the grace that God has bestowed upon us. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father God, we do thank you. We're reminded in this passage that David could have succumbed to fear. He could have succumbed to false counsel. But he rested and stood in the fact that you are stalwart, that your word is true, and that you can be relied upon. There is nothing, no shifting shadow with you. Father God, we face situations every day, sometimes at work, sometimes in our family, where we are tested. And Father, we pray that we could take this word and be reminded of David's stalwart faith in your, in your goodness, your mercy, and the fact that you are unchanging. There is no shifting shadow with you. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for this word. I pray that you would help us to think about it during the course of this week and to take it out into the world and share with a world that is so broken in need of hearing it. We ask all these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.